0: Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. Uh, Just to remind us where we are, we're uh, taking a break from our series in Genesis for just a couple of weeks uh, for a series which I've entitled War and Peace. And we're thinking in the run-up to the election about how we might see peace extended into the world. And that's what we thought about last week. Uh, And we started some trains of thought that might be necessary to see something like that happen. Uh, And so this week I wanted to think about how we can uh, embody that peace and see that peace uh, amongst ourselves. So I want to begin by sharing a story which I've shared once before, but I think will be helpful to share again in the lead up to this election. I recall when I lived in Texas, some older deacons from the church took me out to breakfast one morning and I naively thought they wanted to get to know me. But one of them started, we heard you're going to vote for Obama. I said, well, don't worry, because although I would vote for Obama if I could, I'm not a citizen, so I can't. They said, well, anyone who votes for Obama is cooperating with evil. He is a demon. Yes, they actually called him a demon. I said, well, I have good friends who are incredibly kind, compassionate people who are going to vote for Obama, so so don't call my friends evil. They replied, well, then they must be ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. So I said, well these friends are a lot smarter than I am, so now you're calling my friends stupid, I'd I'd really appreciate it if you just stopped calling my friends evil and stupid. Now when I tell you that story, at first we may not like their approach because we don't like or agree with their politics. Perhaps you're empathetic with me because this is the choice you would have made. After all, this is New York, it's what would have been the majority view. But their politics, or my politics, are really secondary issues. In order to see this, it may help to frame my situation back in 2008 and our situation in 2020 with the political climate that Jesus operated in and into which he delivered his message. As I've often pointed out, the political realities, the political divides were far sharper and more intense in Israel than anything we experience on account of the fact that tens of thousands of Jewish people had been crucified by the Romans and Israel remained under brutal foreign occupation. If you don't believe that they could have experienced a sharper, more intense divide than we do, then then take a moment to imagine America under foreign occupation. Some unimaginably strong superpowers invaded and occupied us. Try to imagine what that would be like. There were several views on how to respond to this desperate situation. The Sadducees were a privileged class of families who ran the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish equivalent of the Supreme Court, and they also ran the Temple and supported King Herod, who was ostensibly Israel's king but in fact was a puppet of Rome, they believed that the only way to save Israel, that the future of their nation, was through cooperation with the Romans, or else they would be wiped from the face of the earth. I can kind of see their point of view. Of course... From the Pharisees' perspective, the Sadducees were only looking out for their own wealth and power. The Pharisees themselves didn't hold much formal institutional power, but they were influential in their teachings, and, and they were convinced that if Jewish people followed Torah accurately, with precision, they would prepare the way for the successful and violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. God would be with them. Perhaps I can see their point of view as well. So the Pharisees accused the Sadducees of being compromised with Rome and the Sadducees would have looked at the Pharisees as political idiots who would end up destroying Israel for good. Each side was utterly convinced of the evils of the other side and they also knew with 100% certainty that they were making the morally superior decision or perhaps more cynically put, they were choosing the lesser of two evils. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he rides into this political storm. And as you know, they they try to trap Jesus. They want him to nail his colours to the mask, and they want to know which side he's on. But Jesus, like the prophets before him, is what we today see as uh, sort of political dissidents. And and so he refuses the either-or choice that is put before him. In fact, through a series of parables, he basically tells both parties that they are both illegitimate, and they are both corrupt in their own way. For example, Jesus says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit, The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Israel's political leaders thought Rome was the new Babylon. But Jesus says, well, it's not really Babylon who beat and killed and stoned God's prophets. It's you, Israel's leaders, who did that, the tenants of God's vineyard. So, outrageously, Jesus says, Rome is not the new Babylon, you are. He addresses Israel's political parties and says, you are both Babylon. Reflecting on Jesus' approach to his own political situation, I'm convinced that Jesus calls the church to have a similar perspective on our own situation, so that we don't invest too much of ourselves in the powers that be and allow these parties to become the dividing line between us, or the source of all our hope, or the source of our utter devastation. But but wait, wait! Surely our situation in America in 2020 is entirely different. In our situation, isn't there a clear choice for or against racism, for or against hatred, for or against injustice? Oh yes, we are trained to think this way. Most people around here in, in New York in the UK at the moment, but in New York, are thoroughly convinced that this time, in this election, it is a real choice between good and evil. I've come across so many stories in the run-up to this election where people have turned against each other or walked away from each other, where they've just cancelled each other out because they think that's the choice and they're horrified by friends or family who are choosing to vote the wrong way. The New York Times published this story about a coffee shop uptown in Inwood. There's a sign in the window that says, Black Lives Matter. When a worker didn't have childcare, the owner of the coffee shop provided it on site. When a different worker feared being stopped by the police and questioned about immigration uh, and their immigration status, he drove that person to and from the cafe. And on Martin Luther King Day, he organised a brunch to raise money for an immigrants' advocacy organisation. Local writers, artists, musicians and activists are regulars. Many considered it a a community hub and progressive oasis where there was a weekly drag queen show. But then the owner said in an MSNBC interview that he voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and he was likely to do so again in 2020. The backlash was swift Neighbours posted hundreds of angry messages aimed at the cafe and some people called for a boycott. One customer said, how could I be against Trump and all he stands for and go somewhere and patronise someone who supports this demon? There's that word again. Yes, they actually called him a demon. You see, New York or Texas, Republican or Democrat, it's the same language of demonization that people rush to. And another vowed she would never go there again. Where's your loyalty? He's broken trust with the community, said another. It's a very long road to redemption, one man concluded. And the owner of the coffee shop, well, he said that the fallout from all this might well put him out of business. Demonising him, walking away from him, questioning his loyalty and sitting in as God and judge. They've determined he's got a long way to go to redeem himself. Because, of course, they know with 100% certainty that voting for Joe Biden is the morally superior decision. It's the clear choice against hatred, against bigotry, against injustice. Look, when I was living in Texas and surrounded by majority Republicans, I would say some things which really upset some people. Not, not everyone, but some people got upset. I wasn't trying to upset them. But they didn't like the fact that I wasn't going along with their scheme of things in which there is some obviously moral superior decision. But we have to take Jesus seriously when he says, before taking the speck out of your brother's eye, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so if I want to be consistent I can't possibly go along with the exact same scheme of things in New York, only in reverse. So let me just point out one or two things which might help us to make clear why this scheme doesn't work for Democrat New Yorkers any more than Texan Republicans. I'll start with Joe Biden's own words. The truth is, Every major crime bill since 1976 that's come out of this Congress, and every minor crime bill has had the name of the Democratic senator from the state of Delaware, Joe Biden. Biden is claiming to be directly responsible for the mass incarceration policies of the 1980s and 1990s, which decimated the black community. Biden authored the 1994 Crime Bill, which imposed mandatory minimum sentences, disproportionately putting hundreds of thousands of young black men in prison and turning the prison industrial complex into what it is today. He worked with segregationists, who he called his mentors and friends, to write and pass these bills. Only now are thousands of people, mostly black people, who had committed non-violent victimless crimes being released from prison as a result of justice reform, which has taken place under this administration. The desegregation of school busing was really important for those kids involved uh, outside of the obvious moral issue, right? I've, I've recently had two conversations with people who both informed me about studies, which showed that when the kids experienced racially desegregated schools, that the grades for both black and white kids went up, their education improved and the incidence of crime for both black and white kids went down. I, I didn't know anything about these studies until these friends pointed them out, but, but education increased, crime decreased. Being together was great. Was a great thing for these kids. But unfortunately, Joe Biden thought otherwise. He, along with his segregationist friends, opposed the forced desegregation of school busing, because as he put it, he didn't want his kids growing up in a racial jungle. And we've all heard the other racial slurs he's made, even in the last six months. It's interesting, because Biden launched his campaign on this very issue of race, claiming that his opponent refused to condemn white supremacists, citing the press conference after the Charlottesville riots, so out of curiosity, I went and looked up the transcripts and videos from that press conference and several others like it. I won't go into details. I'll let you do the research for yourself. I'll just say that Biden launched his campaign on, how can I put this politely, on an untruth. I'm trying to help us avoid saying here what I have heard countless, countless times. We're choosing the lesser evil. Which by default means those people, those other people, are choosing the greater evil. It would be convenient if we could make this sort of claim, but we can't even claim this much without seeming as though we had just swept everything we don't want to see under the rug of a seamless partisan discourse. Let me be very clear. I did not vote, nor will I vote, for Donald Trump. I have my own list of reasons. But we're in New York, and judging by the conversations I've had with people, no one needs me to give you that list of reasons. But I also refuse to vote for Biden. I also have dear friends who are voting for both, and I have family who, if they were American and could vote here, which they can't, but if they could, they'd all cancel each other's votes out. They'd cancel out each other's votes. I have zero interest in trying to persuade you to vote one way or another. Do what you will. My interest is in the body of Christ. And what we won't allow is for the political preferences to divide us. As I said uh, at the last election, this is not America. This is the kingdom of God. This is the body of Christ. Don't bring those divisions in here. Because it is not, as the press leads us to believe, a fight between good and evil, justice and injustice, in the term, in the terms they used to frame it, it's nothing like that, and there can be no room for creating divisions or for feelings of moral superiority, because we did what the majority of people around us are doing and voted for one candidate over the other. When is going along with the crowd ever worked out well? <laughs> just, just as an aside, uh, that should actually be very troubling to us, that churches. In Texas vote with the predominant culture and churches in New York also vote with the predominant culture, that raises questions about our ability to actually be the church. But it's amazing what happens when we become suspicious of the crowd and dare to break away and do something unconventional. This is Jakari Kelly, the leader of Black Lives chapter in northern Utah. Recently, because of all the outcry around Proud Boys, after the worst presidential debate ever, she thought she would sit down and talk to some Proud Boys to see what they were all about. She'd heard about them from the press, but she wanted to talk to them. Now, look, in our day and age, this is a truly radical step that she's taken. And you know what she discovered by taking this radical step? In her words, she discovered that the Proud Boys are certainly not white supremacists. Their national leader is actually a person of colour himself. And so with these revelations, this meeting where they just sat down to talk resulted in them giving a joint local news conference where this BLM leader and Proud Boys leader denounced white supremacy together. They're now dreaming and scheming about how they can work together to confront issues they both care about such as prison reform. How much attention did this get from mainstream news outlets? Hardly any. In a time so divided, you would think, when a nation so polarised, you would think that this is really newsworthy. But as I said last week, the media which sows global division by selling us every war that America and her allies have ever engaged in, they're the same media, and for the most part, sow domestic division as well. Look, I know we all know this, but it's always interesting when you start to look at specific instances. I have no idea what their religious affiliations are, if they have any at all, you know, this BLM leader and this Proud Boys leader. But I'm telling you now, I think they're doing what Jesus would have us do at a time like this. Like I've said before, we hear a lot about Jesus' Last Supper, but what about Jesus' First Supper? You know, the one where he sat down with his disciples for the very first time and had them eat together, where you had Simon the Zealot intent on using violence to overthrow the Roman occupation. And at the same table, table, you had Matthew the tax collector collecting taxes for Herod, who was the puppet of Rome, the ultimate patriot versus the ultimate traitor, the idealist versus the pragmatist. Perhaps at that first supper, Matthew and Simon sat at opposite ends of the table, eyeing each other with the deepest suspicion. Remember, the divides they experienced were far sharper and far more intense than anything we experience on account of the occupation. Well, that may have been the first supper, but I like to think that at the last supper, instead of sitting at opposite ends of the table, Simon and Matthew sat side by side next to each other, enjoying each other's friendship and conversation into the night. And it happens because Jesus looks deeply into both options in Israel and, dare I say, America. Jesus looks deeply into both options in Israel and America, and instead of aligning himself with one side over against another, he calls Israel, he calls humanity, sharply divided against itself by their own politics back to God and back to each other. This sounds like good news. Let's follow him and see what happens. Amen.